Our study today will complete Mark chapter 13 as we've been going through this book. Um, and today is going to be more of a Bible study, a Bible lesson than a, a sermon per se. There's just so many things uh, in here that I want to tackle, and some of them are harder topics, but I want us to tack them, tackle all of them. Uh, and and, and uh, my goal is to do, go through this teaching this passage, and then come back and ask, okay, how does this apply to us today? And as we do that, uh, I just want to say, uh, by way of beginning, I don't know if you heard the scripture reading as Josh was, was taking us through the text. Uh, um, in Lewis's office, we were praying before the sermon, uh, before the service, rather, and Lewis was praying knowing that I was preaching, and he asked for people to stay awake. Stay awake. I'm sure echoing the text. Okay. <laughs> All right. In, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus is teaching on the Mount of Olives. It's the longest discourse in the Gospel of Mark, but it was not given just to satisfy our curiosity about end times or about a timetable for the rapture. Actually, it raises more questions uh, if that's the agenda, then it answers. The focus instead is on how do I live for my Savior in this world that is falling apart? How do I live for Him until He comes? How do I stay on the alert? How do I keep awake? Uh, I, I mean, what does that look like in my life? So that's, that's what this passage is, is about, although it includes many details that fall together, and we will try to unravel some of those things, or, or at least make sense of some of them, from this side of eternity. Just to review a little bit, last week, Lewis took us through verses 1 through 23, where Jesus stunned the disciples by telling them that he is not going to overthrow Rome, he already said that before, and he's not going to occupy the temple, maybe maybe as their new headquarters, if that's where, what they were thinking. Instead, this temple is going to be destroyed and after the disciples kind of catch their breath on this, they ask two questions in verse 4. First, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And secondly, when will everything, all these things is the term. Matthew and Luke make it clear the things that are a part of the end of the age. When will those things be fulfilled? And Jesus doesn't answer the way that they expect. In verses 5 through 37, Instead of a, just a descriptive unfolding of history, these verses contain 19 imperatives. Do this. <laughs> Do this. Collectively, what are we together as the church, the body of Christ, supposed to be doing? Collectively. Individually. Personally. What is your task? Verse 34 asks the questions or, or describes that the, the, the one who has left has assigned to each one a task. What is that about? Now, last week, we looked at verses 5 through 8, where Jesus says certain things are going to become commonplace. And here, here he's focusing on global suffering. Wars and threats of wars in the last 3,450 years of recorded history. Only 268 years have seen no war. That's a lot of war. We see it all around us today. We can't turn on the news without seeing and actually being riveted 
to what's going on in Ukraine. Wars, catastrophic natural disasters, earthquakes, tsunamis, wildfires, hurricanes, whatever they may be. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So wars, catastrophes, false Christs or bogus religions, religious leaders. And, and in fact, the section uh, in this section, verses 5 through verse 23 that we studied last week that Lewis covered. Lewis, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jesus describes what begins and ends with in the same way with warnings about false Christs, false religions. And by the way, when all those leaders of false religions so far have died, they have all stayed dead. Just saying. So here are these signs of global suffering that are commonplace. And we often hear, and, and Lewis made this point last week, and it's a very important point, we hear about wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters and false religions as a sign of the end times. Actually, Jesus has just said the opposite. What he has said is that these are the signs that are not the signs of the end times. These are the signs that will always characterize a fallen, broken, hostile world. Brokenness begats brokenness and exposes our desperate need for redemption, for the cosmos to be redeemed. So Jesus is saying these, these will happen in this time period, and those are not necessarily the signs of the end. They are the signs of sin. They're the signs of need. So in verses 5 through 8, global suffering. In verses 9 through 13, just again, to, if you scan down those, those are verses that describe personal suffering that will come upon you if you stay true to Jesus in a world that hates and ridicules him. And it's the unfolding of the story of the book of Acts. And it's the story that continues until today with the church. In verses 14 through 20, when you see the abomination of desolation, run. We studied this hard text last week. This prophecy of Daniel refers to some kind of defilement of the temple and is one of those prophecies that you see has multiple fulfillments. There are several in the Old Testament that have multiple fulfillments. The phrase in verse 14, let the reader understand, that phrase, in that phrase, the Holy Spirit implies a gap of time in the text. A gap of time that this teaching extends perhaps beyond the lifespan of the hearers to future readers. Do you see that? To future readers. So this prophecy was first fulfilled in 167 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes defiled the temple. Jesus said, it's going to happen again. When armies surround Jerusalem, run for the hills. And it did happen again in 70 A.D. after the deaths of most of the disciples. But Jesus says there will be a fulfillment of this, I believe, yet again, that will precede his second coming, this abomination of desolation that accompanies great tribulation before the coming of the king of kings. Now, Gary, you might think, aren't you sort of telescoping this prophecy beyond what Daniel meant? No, actually, I think the second coming is exactly what Daniel meant. 
Last week, Lewis mentioned the prophetic perspective, which, which I think is very important. When you look at these Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, sometimes there is more than one fulfillment, not in Jesus, but in the things that, are un, that unfold prior to his coming. Uh, Lewis mentioned this, that uh, we, we, in the Old Testament we see the Messiah uh, as a man, uh, the suffering servant, uh, the one who comes to uh, take our sins, the one who dies in our place in Isaiah 53, and in the Psalms, you should see it all through there, the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. But there also, you also see the Messiah as a conquering king of kings. So which one is true? Well, they're, they're both true from the Old Testament perspective. They were both true, but they were just true at different times. So here on the Mount of Olives, was Jesus speaking of the 70 A.D. fulfillment and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, or was he speaking of a future great tribulation and second coming? Both. The disciples stood before both of those events when they heard these words. We stand between these events. We look back on 70 A.D. We look forward to the second coming. And one day, we will stand together with the disciples, with all believers of all centuries, after these things, and with our Lord look back on them. As 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. By the way, I think it's important to recognize we know in part. Now I know in part. But then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. The details will shift. Imagine this. They'll just shift over, lock in place. And everything will make sense. And we'll look back on it and say, oh, of course. Why didn't I see that? Why didn't the New Testament saints see the double fulfillment of this Messiah in the Old Testament? Well, <laughs> right now we do see through a glass darkly. But in verses 24 to 26, this is where we begin, and I, I, as we begin our new section today, all of that is just kind, kind of building the context for this Bible lesson. Every Bible-believing scholar that I know of agrees that from verse 24 on, Jesus is teaching about the second coming. This is future stuff. He begins with the word but, which is a very strong adversative in the Greek language, which often marks a significant contrast, and I believe that's what it does here because we're moving centuries forward to answer the question about the second coming. But in those days, after that tribulation, that future defilement that begins the great tribulation, just, just let these Old Testament words and pictures capture your thoughts because they would have captured the disciples. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven. Probably the, the stars refers to meteors there. We still call them shooting stars. Uh, but these, these will collide with earth when this happens. So the, these words are from Isaiah and words from Joel and from some of the other prophets, just sort of collectively blending together and describing the coming day of the Lord. Jesus continues, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken, which implies movement 
in the heavenly realm. What kind of movement? Well, Colossians 1 says this about Jesus. By him, all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. So creation is by him, through him, for him. And then Colossians says this. In him, all things hold together. See if this explanation makes sense to you. And by the way, you be like these Bereans, those Bereans, and, and check out these things for yourself um, after you get home and say, what was Gary saying about this? Did that make any sense? See if this makes sense. Jesus holds the reins of creation tightly in his hand. Just before he returns, he kind of, the creator kind of loosens the reins of creation. In Genesis 1, Jesus created order and boundaries um, and, and then sin entered the world and brought chaos to paradise, resulting in global suffering that we just read about, resulting in personal suffering that we just read about. This purge here is sort of de-creation. And what will happen in the future is recreation of a new heavens and a new earth. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Look at verse 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. And as you're turning there, I'm going to describe a little bit of the context. There is a great court scene going on in Daniel chapter 7. God is the judge, and he has just decreed in favor of his chosen people, Israel, against various beastly governments that will uh, unfold in history. These other would-be rulers and would-be kingdoms are pictured like animals before him. A lion with eagle's wings. A bear. A leopard with four bird wings and four heads. And then this hideous beast that's so composite that it's really indescribable. Each one of these is a distortion of creation. The point is, they're animals. They're like animals. By contrast, we have the Son of Man who possesses the authority of God. So in Daniel chapter 7, and in the text, I want you to know this, this is just one of those literary things, and since this is more of a Bible lesson today, it's, it's just a beautiful thing to, for me to see. Um, in the text, we have the prose description of these things. But when he gets to God the Father, it turns into poetry. In verse 7, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 9, it may be that your Bibles mark these verses off as poetry. In verses 9 and 10, we have this poetic description. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat. And the books were opened. And it goes back into prose again and describes the beast, the, the, the beast in their dominion and how that was taken away. And then we reach verse 13. And it goes back into poetry again. Back into poetry describing the Son of Man. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. 
he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. Do you remember what Jesus said? All authority has been given to me. Therefore, as you are going, make disciples. So it, to him was given dominion, glory, a kingdom that all the peoples, not just Jewish people, all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. His dominion, in contrast to these human would-be leaders, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then it moves back after describing the ancient of days, the father on the throne in poetry, and then describing the son having received the, the authority and the kingdom from the father, the son of man in poetry, back into prose again. Just an astonishing, beautiful description so that's what verse 26 is citing. Verse 26, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory, power and glory. The things that are referred to in Daniel chapter 7. But what about the believers that are on earth in those times? Verse 27, Then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of the heaven. God takes care of his own, friends. Hebrews 13 puts it this way. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And then a couple of verses later, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and what's the next word? Forever. But Jesus is not done. Look at verse 28. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. It doesn't say summer is here. It says it's near. And <clears throat> verse 29, Jesus applies this analogy. Even so, you too, when you see things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door in a different kind of way. He's right at the door. Jesus says, okay, my return will be like a tree in late spring. Once it begins to blossom, once that happens, once that switch gets flipped, it will not stop until it's done. Then Jesus says something that's been pretty controversial over the centuries. Not controversial to him, controversial to believers who've tried to interpret this. Truly, I say to you, this generation... That is, the generation of the tribulation will not pass away until all these things take place. The generation that sees the beginning of the end will see the end of the end. Does that make sense? The times of the Gentiles will be over. Jesus has come. Now, I need to pause here for some clarification because I said there are a lot of things going on in this passage. And this is one of those things that I think needs to be clarified because uh, there's a lot of different kind of teaching around about Israel and the fig tree. I want to make two major points about, uh, about this. Uh, first, I want to address a common 
interpretation that I believe is a misunderstanding. It's commonly taught that the fig tree symbolizes Israel. And that when it buds, that refers to Israel becoming a nation. So, therefore, that generation, the generation that sees Israel becoming a nation, is the generation of the second coming. And some have gone beyond that to say, in the Bible, 40 years is a generation. So, when I was a young man, I remember hearing it taught that Israel became a nation in 1948. And so Jesus will come back in 1988. Now, from your perspective today, do you see a problem with that interpretation? I just wondered, thought I'd ask the question. So, let me make some comments about this. First of all, the word generation is very elastic in the Bible. <laughs> from, it can refer to ethnic groups, and it can also refer to time spans of much, that are much longer than 40 years. Secondly, the fig tree is not commonly used in the Bible as a symbol of Israel. It's just not. That's reading something into the text. Third, Luke, in the parallel passage, mentions a bit more detail. Jesus says, notice the fig tree and all the trees when they bud. So he's, he's not focusing this as specifically as some have interpreted it. There are many trees in Israel that are evergreens, but here Jesus is talking about deciduous trees. And if you're thinking, wow, Gary knows stuff, I had to look that up. Okay, Deciduous trees, uh, and the most common of those in Israel was the fig tree. But Jesus' point is, in, you know, in the fall it loses its leaves, deciduous trees lose their leaves, and then the sap comes on, on up, over time, as the seasons pass, and then the sap, and then it, they blossom again, and they have that annual cycle. And the fig tree is one of those. And the point is, once that happens, the end will be inevitable. It will blossom. That will happen. Once that tribulation occurs, the end then will be near. Actually, it's, it's a comfort here. It's, it speaks about our hope that, that, as I mentioned before, the generation that sees the beginning of the end will see the end of the end. But in the meantime, God is in charge. There is hope. And in this time of suffering, in this time even of great tribulation, in this bro broken and lost world, Jesus is coming. Now, having said that, I said I was going to talk a little bit about Israel and the fig tree. That's, that's the fig tree part. Having said that, it is true that Israel as a nation definitely plays a role in the second coming. I find it fascinating that Israel did cease to be a nation in 70 AD. And everybody who looked at, for example, Israel through the book of Revelation and, and other passages thought that, oh, that all those things about Israel's future must be figurative because there is no nation of Israel, through the centuries, until 48 AD, when they became a nation again, and you could look at those and say, oh, maybe it is literal. Uh, maybe that is referring to them. In Romans 11.25, Paul says this, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Did you hear that? In the parallel 
Luke's parallel uh, to the Olivet Discourse in the Gospel of Luke. This time period that we're reading about right now and studying in Mark, Luke calls the times of the Gentiles. Now, if you look about, if, if you look kind of at the significance and the proportion of the unfolding of history in the first century, <clears throat> in the first century, Israel to the Roman Empire was like a gnat on an elephant's skin. Fast forward to today, the 21st century, and Israel has been center stage in many world events for decades. So, Gary, are we in the end times? I don't know, and I'm in good company. That's a verse that's yet coming. Back to our text, verse 31. How you doing? You hanging in there okay with? All right. We'll, we'll keep, we'll keep up, uh, in this study. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I, I, can't, pass, I can't move past that statement without ha having us just think about that. Who is the creator? Scripture tells us very clearly it's God the Son who is the agent of creation. That's the, the passages I just read to you from the book of Colossians. All the things that will happen to creation, all those things that are just described, that Jesus just described, will happen to the heavens that he created, to the earth that he created. It'll pass away. That'll pass away. They will pass away. But my words are more certain than the universe. They are eternal. This statement is stunningly arrogant, unless it's true. You're familiar with the reasoning of C.S. Lewis here that if you believe, if you do not believe that Jesus is God become flesh, you can't say he's a good moral teacher. His claims don't allow us that option. If he isn't God, he is an egomaniac. How many of you have ever stood before the Grand Canyon and seen the majesty of that place? How many? I want to see some hands here. Okay. Have any of you ever seen Mount Everest up close from the top? <laughs> um, there are some amazing sights, some beautiful pictures of majesty. I mean, you, you, it, how many of you have you seen some of the pictures from the Hubble telescope? The majesty of the universe? I think we've probably all seen those at times. When I stand before something like that, I look at that and I feel <laughs> small. <laughs> Do you, you understand that feeling? You feel somewhat insignificant? Oh, Lord, thank you for the beauty of that which you have created. This is astonishing. But if the universe could speak, I'm going to a little, little, little uh, fantasizing here. If the universe could speak, the stars would say, the oceans would say, oh, we just heard the Sermon on the Mount, and we feel small. We just heard the discourse on the Mount of Olives. Look at, 
the unfolding plan of God. We feel small. All those things will pass away, but Jesus' word is stable and lasting, more so than the creation itself. By the way, what do you have in your hand? His word. Sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. Now, verse 31 is an astonishing, I just love that verse, but are you ready for some whiplash? The same Jesus who said his word is more certain than the future of the universe now makes a statement that gives ammunition against his deity and has for centuries. Verse 32 but of that day or hour, no one knows, nor even the angels in heaven, but the Father alone. Oh, I skipped something. Let me read it again. Verse 32, but of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but the Father alone. What did I skip? Nor the Son. We've got to talk about this. Wait a minute. I mean, omniscience doesn't know something honestly for me this is a false dilemma i've I've never really been bothered by this jesus self-limitation as described in philippians 2 when infinity and finiteness blend in the incarnation when god became flesh god did not subtract from his deity he didn't divide his deity with humanity. Rather, he added humanity to his deity. That's just how the incarnation works. This verse is not a challenge to his deity. It's an affirmation of his humanity. He is both fully God, fully man, which means, I believe it's been well argued, that there are two centers of consciousness in one person. He was So that the human consciousness, however was sinless and was guided by the Spirit. In Luke 2.52, we read that from age 12, Jesus grew in wisdom. In the incarnation, the Son voluntarily limited his access to his divine knowledge of certain things, yet he was still God. So it shouldn't surprise us that the omniscient Jesus would say to the disciples, when they just didn't get it, would say, okay, Lazarus is dead. How would he know that? Because he's God. But then they go over to Bethany, and Jesus says, where is his body? Asking a genuine question. So, in Mark chapter 2, it shouldn't surprise us when we see the omnipotent Jesus as God forgiving sins. And then a few verses later, he becomes tired. Jesus is truly God and truly human. That's the biblical view. It's what the church has taught from Acts 2 and beyond. Uh, So Jesus did not know at that time, the time of his return. Does he know now? I would think so. (laughs) I mean, if if you want any biblical evidence, I think it's common sense, but after the resurrection, the disciples asked the glorified Christ, is it now that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' answer was slightly different from what he says here. He does not say, I don't know. He says, rather, it is not for you to know. 
Now, I recognize that's an argument from silence, but it's what logicians call significant silence. So, and, and, I mean, you could add Revelation 1.1, where the future revelation is what God gave Jesus to show to his bondservants. So, but you have to notice here in, in this verse, look at verse 32 again. You have to notice that this problem verse, and now stay with me on this, this problem verse is actually an apologetics verse. Uh, notice the hierarchy of knowledge here. At the lower level, no one knows. No human knows. Okay? No human knows. That's clear. And then, moving up, not even the angels. The word even shows that in, in what follows, there's this hierarchy of expected knowledge. Not even those supernatural beings who are constantly uh, in contact, carrying out the will of the Father, not even they know. And then he moves up. Nor the Son. That is the next step above the angels. His, his comment, <clears throat> in fact, he's, he says, but the Father only. So he connects himself as the Son with the Father there. Do you, do you see that? He is saying, I am the Son of the Father who is God. By the way, this is the argument of Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is greater than the angels, and the angels worship him. Why? Because he is God. So, what does Jesus' word, which will not pass away, tell us about how to live until this universe does pass away? Well, every exhortation in Jesus' last analogy, starting with verse 33, is a call for watchfulness, for vigilance, for wake up! Verse 33, take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It's like a man going away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge assigned to each one a task uh, his task also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert therefore be on the alert for you do not know when the master of the house is coming whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning those are the four watches of the night folks you don't know when he's coming in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. And I want you to notice the shift in verse 3. It's the four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. In verse 37, Jesus concludes, I say to all. This is for future believers as well. And that's what the Spirit has indicated in verse 14. Let the reader not just the hearer, let the reader understand. Now, do you see that throughout this last section, he has given us something to do, and that is be on the alert. Verse 33, take heed, keep on the alert. Verse 34, stay on the alert. Verse 35, Therefore, be on the alert. Verse 36, uh, uh, make sure he doesn't come suddenly and find you asleep. Verse 37, I say to all, be on the alert. Why do we not know God's 
timetable for these things? One answer is because Jesus knows that uncertainty encourages us to be on the alert. If we knew when, I think we'd be lazy up until five minutes before. So how are we to be on the alert? By looking for signs? Actually, no. One writer described how some people get obsessed with looking for signs, and they become so obsessed they look for signs of the signs, and then signs of the signs of the signs. He called it prediction addiction. If you're obsessed with looking for the signs of the signs, if you, if you allow yourself to be obsessed with that, with a numerical symbolism, I remember years ago, of, of uh, um, uh, Henry Kissinger's name, numerically adding up to 666, uh, of COVID-19 vaccine being the mark of the beast. If you're obsessed with those kind of things, then you're not focused on what Jesus has called us to focus on. What are we to do? How are we to think? How are we to keep on the alert in a way that pleases Jesus? And here's where I just want to move from our text to some points that we're going to harvest out from it and take home with us. So some points, I think, of application, and here they are. Uh, focus on your mission, prepare for suffering, and be faithful in your unique tasks. Number one, focus on your mission. What is your mission? Verse 10, Jesus has given all of us the task of evangelism. The gospel must be preached to all nations. This is not a sign that, okay, when, don't turn that into a sign. Okay, when it's preached, then he'll come. No, this is saying, this is what we must be doing. The gospel must be preached to all nations. It's not a sign, it's a mandate. In uh, Acts uh, chapter 1, I mentioned this passage before, but when Jesus said, when the disciples asked, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom? Jesus said, it's not for you to know. But here's what you can know. Verse 8 in Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be witnesses. Both in Jerusalem. And in all Judea and Samaria. And even to the remotest part of the earth. The word witnesses is the same word from which we get our word martyrs. You will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem which was the unfolding of the gospel in Acts 1 through 7. In Judea and Samaria you move from a city to regions which was the unfolding of the gospel in Acts 8 through 12, and to the uttermost part of the earth. Acts chapter 13 begins the first missionary journey. And this is the, unfold, this is the spread of the gospel that we are to engage in. And the, what I'm saying is the mission for first century believers is the same as the mission for 21st century believers. We are to share the gospel, the good news, with people around us who are living in the midst of, of this world that is broken and sinful and awaits redemption. We have the answer that people need. And it doesn't generate from us. It's a gift that we have the privilege of sharing with those around us. So first of all, focus on your mission because this is our collective responsibility. Secondly, Prepare for suffering. Throughout Scripture, 
This is the lot of the people of God in this, again, broken and fallen world. Everyone suffers. And if you are wanting to live a life that is faithful to Jesus, then you will suffer more from that hostility that the world has. Don't let it catch you off guard from the eternal perspective. This world is not your home. This world is not your home. Sometimes I think we feel like um, this is the main story, and when Jesus comes back, it's going to be the epilogue. No, 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 no. We are living in the prologue. The story begins when the sun returns. So prepare for suffering. Don't get too cozy. And by the way, this ties back in the first point in sharing the gospel because suffering is, is just the air that the need for the gospel breathes. The third point, be faithful to your unique tasks. And I take this from verse 34 where we read, it's like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge assigning to each one his task. Why does Jesus include the phrase assigning to each one his task? I don't want to read too much into that, but there's no reason to include that phrase unless he may be communicating something akin to Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Whatever you do, your vocation, your family, your relationships, <laughs> let's expand, expand your eating, your exercising, your listening to music, watching TV, reading, uh, playing horse with the kids. You're always the horse, wrestling with them. From God's perspective, all of those things are a part of the unique tasks that are in the circle which providentially God has placed before you, they are the things in which you are to think, this is for the Lord. I play with my children in a way that pleases the Lord from the eternal. That's what, and I know that we don't always think that way, but I think we need to be training our minds so that we do. Be faithful in your unique tasks. I'm always uh, a little bit taken aback when I read in 1 Corinthians 15 about the, uh, the resurrection at the end where Paul talks about being, our bodies being raised in the final day, in the final resurrection. And then he concludes the whole chapter by switching gears and, and says, therefore, make sure that you're always abounding in the work of the Lord. Right here, right now, in the unique tasks that God has given to you. So, what I'm pulling together from this chapter and from the eternal perspective is, is this is just simply living in light of eternity. It's spiritual growth 101, right? Becoming more like Jesus as you anticipate the day when faith becomes sight and we shall see him as he is without compromising, without living in sin, staying faithful to him, this is how you keep on the alert. This is how you stay awake. This, this is how you please him. 
so that the focus of your life is not going to be on wealth or power or, or acclaim or your appearance or your toys or, your, or the way that other people perceive you on Facebook. None of that stuff matters. If Jesus were to return right now, would you be happy with the, with the life that you were living? If Jesus were to return right now, would you be happy with the life that you were living? If not, what are you going to do about it? I love the fact that when we sin, he forgives when we confess our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That is his promise. But how does he want us to live? Well, he wants us to focus on him. He wants us to engage in the tasks that he has called us to, to be prepared for suffering, to share the gospel, live out the gospel in the circles that we inhabit. Now, if there's someone here who is not yet a Christian, maybe you have questions about the things that we've been talking about today. Um, and I'd love to talk with you after the service. But I do want to say this. The gospel itself that we are to share with those around us, we want to share with you. The gospel itself is clear. Sin separates us from a holy God. And Scripture is clear that all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. Scripture is also clear that we can't earn our way into God's presence because of our sin. And the wages of sin, the outcome of it, the verdict of it is death. But Jesus took our place. God became flesh so that as a human, he could die and redeem humanity. And as a result of that, while the wages of sin is death, the free gift, not earned, given of God, is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. What do you do with the gift? You receive it. But this is a gift to be received with empty hands. By grace you're saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. Not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. So whoever believes in him will not perish, but has everlasting life. If you're here today and, and you don't find yourself at that point yet, you're thinking about the gospel, I'm, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to begin reading scripture and to begin with the gospel of John. And I want you to pray. And here's my challenge. As you read the gospel of John, ask God, if all of this is true, show me. God, show me Jesus. Let me know the truth of this. Because the puzzle pieces of history are moving towards each other. And I believe we don't know when they're going to interlock, shift, and fall into place. But when they do, until then, until that picture is complete, there is still time for any one of us to be saved. But one day, that last piece will lock into place. Until then, as Jesus says in Revelation 20, taking a verse with a different kind of application, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for its beauty. Thank you for its complexity. Thank you that uh, we are to dig in and feast. I pray, Lord, that you would, use by your Spirit, help us to think clearly about those things, especially that are the most important that will please you. And I pray that we would leave here today committed more deeply to serving you faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.